Well, good morning, everybody. Special good morning, and thank you to the people who are sitting out in the parking lot enduring the heat so that we can enjoy our uh, extra space in here, our personal space. Uh, and happy 4th of July. So I got a little ahead of the game, I guess. A little earlier this week, I grilled hamburgers for the family to eat for dinner. One of my sons came into the kitchen to make his plate, and he looked at the, 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 the package of hamburger buns, and we're cheap, so they're made by Wonder Bread. And he says, ooh, Wonder Buns. I said, hey, that's what I call your mom. And I am so glad you thought that was funny, because nobody in the room thought that was funny. Which, which illustrates my point. See, when we have the freedom to do something or to say something, that doesn't necessarily mean that we oughta. Freedom is this incredibly elusive thing. We think we've got it nailed down. We understand that it's the, the, the right or the privilege to act under our own volition, right? But then the second we do, we are trapped by the consequences of our own actions. And we are no longer free. In fact, we're sitting there having dinner with surly teenage boys who would prefer to think they were the product of some kind of mitosis or <laughs> something like that. So it's the 4th of July. It seems appropriate this morning that we take a look at the biblical idea of freedom. Uh, what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to live free? I want us to take a look at Galatians chapter 5. We're just going to look at the very first verse of the chapter. This is written by Paul to the church in Galatia. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Look again at the first sentence there. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Notice that Paul uses the word free in two very distinct ways right there in the same sentence. When he says, Christ has set us free, what he's talking about, the way he's using the word here, is an event that happens in a single moment. So think of, um, think of a prisoner being set free. This happens at a single period in time. The gate opens, he walks through it, he has been set free. It's done. Um, think, about, think about the Israelites, enslaved in Egypt for generations. It's at one historical moment in time that Moses shows up and makes his plea. God works his miracles. Pharaoh sets the Israelites free. Pharaoh changes his mind. He chases them down. God sees the Israelites safely across the Red Sea. The waters swallow up Pharaoh and his army. And in that moment, it's done. It's over. They have been set free. They were freed. Or think of the 4th of July, right? We can, we can say the, what day it happened on and what year it happened. We know the room it happened in. We know the people that signed the one document. And once they signed it, it was a done deal. Those 13 American colonies were no longer British. And the war they were fighting against England was a war against a foreign country. 
they had been freed. It was done, said, in that moment. So when Paul writes that Christ has set us free, he's talking about a specific moment in history when God himself became human, made of flesh, born of woman, experiencing all the joys and all the sufferings of humanity just so that he can experience death and conquer death for our sake. So in his letter to the Romans, Paul writes this. If you look at Romans 6.23, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe this is a verse you're familiar with. For the wages of sin is death, because we're imperfect, because we can't earn our own way into heaven, into the eternal presence of God. Well, then we're going to experience death. We're going to experience an eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Through the sacrifice of Christ, we're offered salvation. In that one moment, God provided freedom from the burden of the law of Moses and from the consequences of our own sin, so that when we place our faith in him, we're guaranteed eternal life in the presence of God. We are freed. And it takes place in a single moment. But that raises an important question. Why has Christ set us free? So let's take a look at Galatians 5 again. Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Paul says the very reason we have been set free is that we can have freedom. So when he uses the word this this other way, He's no longer talking about something that takes place in a single moment. He's talking about something that is ongoing. We have experienced this moment so that we can have lifelong freedom, an eternal life of freedom. It's an ongoing experience. It's continual. Christ has set us free from the law and the consequences of sin within that single moment so that we could go on living freely, eternally. Now, there are some very common misconceptions about what freedom is. This is a current American conversation. You're all aware of that. What I think many of us aren't aware of is that it's a two-century-old American conversation. The conversation we're having in our culture today that's in the news isn't news. These misconceptions of what freedom is have been our struggle for 245 years today. So one of those misconceptions is that um, freedom means we have no assistance. We have no room to fail. We have no backup. We are independent. We are on our own. And so this is where we get the, uh, the saying from, right? We're supposed to pull ourselves up by... Our own bootstraps, that's absolutely right. And if we're going to have success, if we're going to experience real freedom, it's going to be because we have achieved these accomplishments on our own, independently. And if you don't experience those things, it's because you failed, and you did that independently. And this is where we get this classic American image of the cowboy that strolls into town. And who comes with him? Nobody. And he saves the day, And he rides off on his horse into the sunset with whom? Nobody. And that stirs up our pride, doesn't it? 
I want to be like that guy. No problem too big. I've got this under control. I have freedom. I have independence. We don't want to need other people. We want to be able to save ourselves, and ultimately what that means is we want to be able to work out our own salvation. And this is precisely what happened to the Israelites over and over and over and over again. This is why some of the Old Testament stories are important stories to know. The Israelites are freed from slavery. They cross the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is destroyed. It's important that that's a part of the story because we need to know who saved the Israelites, who had the power to free the Israelites. Pharaoh didn't have the power to free the Israelites. He was enslaved to his own pride. If you go back and read the stories, it's four or five different times he frees the Israelites and changes his mind every single time. He cannot do it. Who freed the Israelites from slavery? God did. So this is precisely what happens then for generations. They are um, governed by, by prophets, by judges, but ultimately they're ruled by God. But over that time, they observe other nations, other nations that are more powerful than them, while at the same time being independent from this God that's ruling, ruling us, right? I want to be like them. I want to be independent. And Israel turns to God and they say, we want a king. We want to rule ourselves. We want our independence. And God says, no, you don't. And they argue with him, and he gives them what they want, and the results are predictable. Now, all of a sudden, the Israelites are enslaved to the demands and the whims of a human God. They sought out their independence from God, and they became far more enslaved. Freedom does not mean loneliness or aloneness. It doesn't mean self-rule. In fact, just the opposite. We tend to find the greatest freedom in our lives in environments where we have um, room to fail and try again, where we have a support system that we can submit to. We'll come back to that. There's another common misconception about freedom. And that's that there should be no restrictions. Think back to your own childhood. At some point, this happened to you, and you know it. You got caught doing something you shouldn't do, and you said to your parent, or you said to that teacher, or whomever the authority was, it's a free country, isn't it? (laughs) What a dumb thing to say. So the idea is that I can do whatever I want as long as I'm not hurting anybody, right? Well, of course not. That wouldn't be freedom at all. Imagine for a second. Imagine a road. Imagine I-81 with no speed limit. That's not hard. And no lines painted on it. And no real instructions or concern about who's driving in which direction. Get on northbound, get on southbound, drive out. Doesn't matter. You know full well that there's folks who are going to take full advantage of this to see just how fast and recklessly they can drive. And you can probably look around in the room and figure out who these other folks are that will be on the shoulder of the road moving at about 15 miles an hour, all tensed up and twitchy and probably the ones that are going to cause the accidents. Would you have any sense of freedom or liberty driving on that road? Of course not. Anarchy, chaos aren't freedom. They only leave us at the mercy of the most reckless and the most dangerous among us. Now for the smart Alex in the room, 
There are roads like the Autobahn out there that have no speed limit. But if you do your research, you will find that there are far more strict and well-enforced rules on those roads so that they can experience that particular freedom. What a great idea. Maybe we should do that to 81, right through Roanoke. <laughs> so freedom is not the opposite of structure. Freedom is not the opposite of structure. Another common misconception of freedom is that it should, um, it should provide for us a life of ease, or at least equal ease, right? My life should be as comfortable and relaxed as anybody among us. So I'm going to paint you an image of that. When I was 18 years younger, better looking, Wonder Buns and I had our first child. <laughs> I'm going to pay for that. <laughs> Worth it. Um, when he got to be two, three, four years old, somewhere in there, he had this lawnmower, this little plastic lawnmower that blew bubbles when you pushed it. And we have pictures of me mowing the yard with Ryder walking along behind me with his lawnmower. And he would just follow me all over the yard with this thing. And when he hit a certain age, he needed to run the big lawnmower. And that certain age lasted a while because he was nowhere near ready. When I finally thought he was ready, and you, most of you have experienced this already, right? When, when I thought he was ready, I taught him how to operate the machine, how to handle the gas can, what parts and pieces to keep your fingers and your toes away from, all this stuff. Got him going. I'd march right along beside him. It was like I was still mowing the yard. He had this big grin on his face until I thought he was ready. And then it became his responsibility. How much do you think he enjoyed that newfound freedom? <laughs> he hated it. It was work. It was not what he wanted. Oops. Freedom is not a life of ease. Ironically, just the opposite tends to be true. Freedom is often found in the most highly structured environments. It stems from the hardest work, and it is secured by your collaboration and often your submission to others. I've thought about this a lot as a musician. First of all, I play the drums. This is not a solo instrument. So there's that. But no matter what instrument you play, a song is written in a particular key, um, with a particular time signature, at a particular tempo. You might be playing it with other musicians, or a metronome, or both, John. <laughs> You'll find that any given instrument has particular restrictions it operates in its own way, people who've played a lot will even tell you the difference between different types of the exact same instrument. What you'll find is that your fingers and your arms, they only move so fast and only so far apart from one another. And it's within these limitations that you have to work and work and work and work. Professional musicians talk about their full-time 30 to 40-hour week being practice before they even go out and perform. But, as you all know, when you go out and watch them perform, what's most impressive is the grace and the ease and the freedom 
that they seem to have up there with the instrument, with one another, with the music itself. It comes from the, uh, the time put into it, the effort, the collaboration, and the learning. You can see the same, you can see the same freedom in professional athletes. And actually, the more I think about this, the more I think maybe you can see it better. You can see the, the, the difference in college athletes and high school athletes. You can spot the ones who have absolutely mastered their knowledge of the game and all its idiosyncrasies and have worked the, fundament, the, the fundamentals for hours and hours and hours and have mastered their teammates and how to work together. You can tell who those players are because there is no awkwardness in them. There is an absolute grace and ease and freedom out there on the court or the field. And the truth is you can do this with anything that demands effort from you. Think about your own job. Picture for a moment that coworker of yours who seems to have absolutely mastered every nuance of his job and has put in the time and the effort to do it seamlessly, effortlessly, with absolute total grace and freedom. You're probably picturing somebody who has put in the most work. There's a great scene from one of my favorite movies, Apollo 13, that shows this well. So if you're not familiar with the story, let me, let me set you up. The Apollo 13 mission, of course, was one of the, the moon landing missions. And as far as that's concerned, it failed. There was an explosion on board, and the entire mission simply became about getting these three astronauts home alive. So naturally, there's lots of problems to solve along the way. This scene is what some of that problem-solving just might have looked like. Gene, we have a situation brewing with the carbon dioxide. We had a CO2 filter problem on the lunar module. Five filters on a limb. Which are meant for two guys for a day and a half. So I told the doctor. They're already up to eight on the gauges. Anything over 15 and you get impaired judgment, blackouts, the beginnings of brain asphyxia. What about the scrubbers on the command module? They take square cartridges. The ones on the limb are round. Tell me this isn't a government operation. This just isn't a contingency we've remotely looked at. Those CO2 levels are going to be getting toxic. Well, I suggest you gentlemen invent a way to put a square peg in a round hole. Rapidly. Okay, people, listen up. People upstairs, Candidate's this one, and we got to come through. We got to find a way to make this fit into the hole for this. It cut off about one second before you see him come around the corner with this thing in a Ziploc bag and duct tape all over it. It's beautiful. Um, while you're at home today eating your hot dogs and hamburgers, watching the kids play and enjoying the fireworks, think about that as being an example of freedom instead of what you're doing. See, whether the people in the room there realized it or not, they had trained their entire careers for that one moment. Everybody in that room understood the limitations and the nuances of their equipment and of this particular mission. Everyone in that room had put in hundreds of hours working in this environment, 
and working with one another. What absolute freedom. They knew that they could trust one another. They knew that they were equally invested in this thing. What absolute freedom. And here's the one that I've always liked the best about this particular scene. These men had room to fail and take risk. And here's what I mean by that. I would bet good money that nobody at any time in that room said the words, well, that's a stupid idea. Every idea was a good idea until it failed and they'd learned from it and they moved on. What absolute freedom that is. And so this brings us back to Paul's message to the Galatians. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, in this particular case, Paul is addressing a very singular issue, and he is telling the Galatians that they should not submit themselves again to the law of Moses. He's reminding them that they can't save themselves by following a list of rules. Salvation comes exclusively through the sacrifice and the power of Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled into thinking that you can do it on your own. Like that great American cowboy. This is what Paul is saying to them. However, we enslave ourselves just as easily through the other misconceptions. We understand our freedom to mean Uh, that we're free to indulge in whatever we please, and then we soon find out that we are enslaved to our indulgences. Sometimes that's addictions, drugs, alcohol, pornography. Sometimes it's our own pride or uh, insatiable drives for things like power or money or material goods or relationships. When we understand freedom to mean that, that we deserve this life of ease, well, then we're easily enslaved by a lack of, of self-confidence, of poverty, or often by submitting far too much authority in our lives over to someone else, just as the Israelites did when they asked God for a king. All products of, of laziness. Now, I do feel like I've used all of my time today to talk about what freedom isn't. And I think that's important I think it's important to remind ourselves of the ways that we, we talk about freedom and how um, they've become very convoluted in our culture today and very misleading. No, if you want to experience freedom, you need to do two things. One will happen in a single moment. Accept the salvation that is graciously offered to you through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And in that single moment, you will enter into a new life that lasts for eternity. Life doesn't get easy after that. Number two, submit yourself fully to God's leading through the Holy Spirit. This verse that I'm about to go to is the one that I actually started all of this with. And I ended up kind of tucking it in at the end. I think Peter makes this point the best. If you're not familiar with this verse, open your Bibles, underline it. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's 
slaves. If you haven't figured it out yet, you have to serve somebody. You have to serve something. It can be a substance. It can be your pride. There's only one master that frees you completely to become what you were designed to be so that you can confidently and fearlessly act when he calls. It won't be a life of ease. It won't be a life of indulgence. And you won't be independent. But you will discover a confidence that is liberating. You'll discover desires you never thought you'd have. You'll develop skill you never thought you would. You'll fail. But it won't be devastating. You'll have that that perfect, gracious, loving master to help you back up and set you on the road again. Can you imagine any greater freedom than that? This is a remarkably tough concept for us today because we have developed such convoluted ideas of what it means to be free. If you want a better understanding of how to experience freedom, if you want a better understanding of how to submit fully, to the Holy Spirit, give your life over to his leading. I challenge you to use your devotional time this week to go back and watch the sermons from May and June that Scott just finished last week regarding the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's about nothing except how to live your most free life where you aren't obliged to earn your salvation, where you are free to become everything that you were meant to be, where the Holy Spirit can work his will through your life. And as you do, pray for the wisdom and the understanding of what it means to be free. It's going to affect the way you behave toward others. It's going to affect your relationship with Christ. And yes, it might affect the way you vote. And for those of you that are willing to accept this um, assignment for your devotional time over the next week, I'm going to commit, and I'm going to commit our staff to, they didn't know I was going to say this, to pray right along with you that God would open your eyes and our own to what it means to live our best life. Now, there's a phrase that gets abused. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for a beautiful morning. I thank you for a beautiful day that we get to be outside and celebrate and enjoy one another and just enjoy the freedoms and the liberties that, that we do have, Lord, that you have granted us. As Americans, as your creation, and as your followers. Lord, I just pray that that you would take advantage 
of the, the series that Scott just finished preaching and of the, the prayers that have gone into the last six months of what, what this church has been about. Lord, I just pray that you would, you would honor them and begin to open eyes. Lord, that it wouldn't just be about that singular moment, but it would be about how we live for you after that singular moment, fearlessly failing and getting back on track in your grace and your power. Lord, I thank you for for the freedom to gather here and talk about these things together, and I pray that you would stir hearts and that there would be talk. I thank you for the freedom that we have to turn to you openly. And I just pray that you would stir hearts that we might do just that. Lord, thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.